Hello and welcome to episode 120 of the Waters Wavelength Podcast. I am Anthony Malaki in U.S. Editor of Waters and I am joined by James Rundle, our news editor. Hello. So today we have got <laughs> an exciting topic. James it's, assures me it's an exciting it is topic. Exciting. If you're if you're a bit nerdy about the arcana of financial markets, then... I mean, aren't you just hooked already? I mean, with just that intro. <laughs> just, uh, just get on with the podcast. <laughs> okay. We're going to be talking about non-default losses at CCPs or something like that. I'm going to let James explain, but I have some questions ready, I guess. NDLs at CCPs? We can go out heavy on this, man. This is great. Something like that. I don't know. Uh, but we'll get into that in just a moment. Uh, first couple uh, house cleaning notes, I guess. Something like that. Uh, May 16th, Wednesday, in London at the Tower Hotel, we have the Buyside Technology European Summit. Uh, our editor-in-chief, Victor Anderson, will be there. Our two European reporters, uh, Hamad Ali and Josephine Gallagher, will be there. Potentially some of the uh, people on the data side will be there. I don't really know about that. Um, so that's uh, usually it's free for end users to attend. For buy side, I think, yeah. Yeah, um, should be fine. So if you are a buy side firm or if you are a sell sider that wants to know a little bit more about the buy side, go and attend that event. You can still register um, online. We will link to it in uh, the body of this story. Yeah, it's free. Why not? Free. I mean, you yeah. know what? it's just a day out of the office. Yeah. yeah. Free lunch, free drinks. And then uh, here in the U.S. in New York, excuse me, we have the North American. Financial Information Summit, and I'm not sure where that's at, but somewhere in Midtown Hotel. It's at one of the convenes in Midtown, but we'll link to that one as well. I think uh, it's the Marriott, is it? Is that where it's Marriott? Because I know Jamie said that they accidentally booked her into the hotel where the conference was, so I think she's staying at the Marriott. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. So, oh, Jamie will be over. Jamie Hammond. Jamie and from... also Amelia Axelson, who Amelia Axelson. sounds uh, very Nordic, but is actually from Houston. There you um, go. So, so I mean, we got them over, and Max Bowie will be there. That's May 23rd, the North American Financial Information Summit. Again, that one I do know, that one is free for end users to attend. Uh, so again, register. That one's going to be very, very data-focused, uh, data regulation, data analytics tools, stuff like that. Uh, so both those events, uh, one in London, one here in New York, uh, free to attend. We'll link to it if you have more questions about it. And of course, the Waters rankings are open right now. Uh, just, you know, we went through this last week, so just... If the nominating process is open for about another week or so, and then it will close, there won't be an extension on the nominating process. So get that done. Listen to last week's podcast if you want to know about how to go about doing that. All right, let's get into this. So, well, let's. I, I <laughs> danger zone. <laughs> so, we are going to look at banks and CCPs clash over non-default losses. So that was a story that James wrote for Risk a long time ago. That was 2016. Yep. I'm going to go and just uh, read out a graph from this just to kind of set a tone, I guess, maybe. But CCPs and their members acknowledge that non-default losses, NDLs, those incurred by the clearinghouse unrelated to member defaults are a risk that needs addressing urgently. In these events, the CCP would not have access to all its various layers of resiliency known as default waterfall. All right, let's start this off, James. You've covered this for a risk. Why don't you kind of give us the lay of the land? All right, well, let's, let's take it back a step. So for those of you who might not be intimately familiar with clearinghouses... Um, nor should you be. Nor should you be. Uh, they've been around for many, many years. LCH has been around for over 100. Um, but uh, their use has kind of rapidly expanded after the financial crisis. The idea being that they serve as a middleman in derivatives trades. So a buyer to every seller and a seller to every buyer. 
that way they can guarantee that if one party defaults, um, the trade will go through. And they do this through what's called the default fund, ultimately. So this is when a bank enters into a derivatives trade with a counterparty. They both put up collateral in the clearinghouse. If one party defaults, that collateral is used to make sure the trade goes through, essentially. Um, there's been a lot of focus around this in terms of you know whether levels are sufficient, if multiple banks default or clearinghouses or whatever. But what's received less attention is the other risks to the clearinghouse that aren't necessarily related to the transaction itself. So these are called non-default losses. They can cover anything through from like a cyber attack on a CCP through to uh, some kind of disaster recovery scenario, through to investment losses at the CCP when it reinvests the collateral, um, or through to rogue employees wiring margin out of it or whatever. So it's quite serious. And actually, um, in that piece I filed for risk a couple of years ago, the chief risk officer of LCH said that they're the most pernicious losses um, and they could potentially take a CCP down far more easily than a member default, which is sort of the primary reason it's there. Okay. Why are we talking about this now? Why so this is this something you wrote about in 2016? Why is this now top of mind? Well, now the, the European Parliament has actually taken steps to address this directly. It's actually the first body to really do so. Like It's been kind of mentioned obliquely in various regulatory documents, but at the beginning of this year, the European Parliament drafted... Um, a proposal for NDL saying, okay, well, if one of these happens, if there is a cyber attack, if there is a failure of a custodian bank, if something goes wrong, who's on the hook for it? Mm-hmm. And essentially they said um, that the CCP should be on the hook for up to 75% of the regulatory capital it has to hold as a buffer. Um, and a lot of people are quite confused about that. So the CCP already has to hold 25% of its regulatory capital in the default pool. So the idea being that it kind of aligns the interests of the CCP with those of its members to manage risk effectively. So it has skin in the game, essentially. Mm-hmm. It's got stuff to use. So a lot of people are saying, well, did you just take the other 75% and say that's what you've got to do with it? Yeah. Um, we're talking about this now because uh, it's now going to go through the council for revisions and they're going to start talking about it either this week or next couple of weeks. Okay. Um, but it's going to be an interesting outcome, I think. So, I mean, when you look at a CCP, it is a risk mutualizer. The idea being that if you disperse this among multiple participants, you're much more easy to absorb market shock than if you're just doing it on a bilateral basis between Morgan Stanley and JP Morgan, for instance. Mm -hmm. If Morgan Stanley then defaults on its loss, JP Morgan's left holding the bag and loses a lot of money. If you're dispersing that risk among, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 members or whatever, um, then you have a much larger pool of resources to draw from. Um, But the FCMs are saying that, you know, when it comes to things like cyber attacks and when it comes to things like rogue employees and investment losses at CCP, so CCPs are required to reinvest the collateral they receive to make sure that it's not going to be going missing or anything like that. Um, they're saying, why should they be on the hook for risk they don't introduce into the clearinghouse? Mm-hmm. And the CCP says, well, look, I mean, you know, the whole point of us existing is to mutualise risks, so you've got to mutualise all the risks, not just mm-hmm. the ones that you cherry-pick. Um, and no one's really wanted to tackle this problem, I think, but the European authorities are becoming the first ones to do it, so that's why it's important. If you create a system like this where, because I do understand where the CCP is coming from on this, but I can also understand the banks because mm. why should they be on the hook for something catastrophic goes wrong? Yeah. Then should they not also then have a, a much greater say in how the operations of these companies are run? Well, and yeah. And this is what they kind of argue as well. They're saying, you know, for, for instance, um, a CCP can only hold 5% of its collateral in banks. It has mm-hmm. to reinvest 95% into the market. So they usually do it in the overnight repo market, for instance. 
So the bank's saying, fine, you know, if we're going to be on the hook for this, then we want to be on the investment committee that decides how this stuff gets done yeah. and all the rest of it. But then, you know, what are you going to do? With, are you going to get 50 people to agree on a trade that has to be done overnight, something like that at the time? The CSP said something. Did they do that with the LIBOR so. fixing scandal or something? <laughs> so they can agree trades when it seems. Um, so, yeah, the CSP essentially say you can't have that many voices. You can't run it by committee. It has to be done, essentially, at this level. Yeah. And the CSPs are saying, well, you know... At the end of the day, we want to say in it, or at the very least, you know, at the end of the day, you are for-profit entities. Um, so, I mean, surely if you're making money off of the collateral that we're investing with you, then you have to bear the risk for it as well if it goes down. Okay. It's a, uh, yeah. What's the nightmare scenario? So let's say there's a cyber attack, all right? Because obviously disaster, uh, the DR kind of thing, those happen, you know, hopefully it's got enough resiliency to handle, you know, something that isn't too catastrophic. But a cyber attack, I think, is a very likely scenario yep. where you're talking about worst case scenario. What happens, massive hack shuts down the CCP, whatever it is, um, how does that then create that waterfall effect that will trickle down to everybody else? How does that kind of shut down the market in the worst case scenario? Well, I think the, the, the problem is, and I spoke to a couple of um, CCP risk officers last week actually about this, and, thinking about doing a story like a follow-up um the worst case scenario for just a straight operational event such as that is that the um the cost of the event burns through quickly what the ccp puts up so like say swap clear for instance has to put up i think 160 million 75 percent of its collateral uh, of its uh, um risk capital sorry that could, a, a cyber event on a scale that would shut down a CCP would probably cost a lot more than that to fix, mm -hmm. especially if it was a destructive uh, cyber attack and not just someone intruding into the system. Sure. If they actually shut down the systems and ruin the code and wipe the ledgers and whatever. Right. Um, anarchy for anarchy. Anarchy, so exactly. The end of fight club kind of thing, you know. Um, and that's I mean, got to be front and foremost in people's minds. Like clearing houses is such an important part of the financial system that if one goes down, especially a major one like an LCH, it has a huge catastrophic knock-on effect for the rest of the market. I seem to remember a very similar conversation around this run CME group, and that's why a lot of banks in the U.S. were pushing against. But I, honestly, again, this is not something no, that yeah. I'm really right about, so I can't remember. But well, the main, the North, but the real problem is, um, and this is what the risk officer said, is that you have an operational, a catastrophic operational event like a massive cyber attack against CCP mm -hmm. coupled with a market shock that has either been caused by that or is indirectly. So the CCP burns through the money it's put aside to cover the non-default loss, then it has to dip into the default fund, which is there to guarantee the trades. Then all of a sudden you have a bank that falls down as well. And so the banks have to replenish that default fund. You know, it mm -hmm. doesn't once you use that money, it's not like it's just, oh well that's gone. You know, you yeah. have to put money back into it to bring it back up to the level it was to guarantee the um to cover the risk, essentially the counterparty risk. Then if a major bank falls down, whether as a result of that or if it's coordinated attack, whatever Suddenly, you've got trades that are defaulting left, right, and centre. You need that default funds to cover those trades, but the CCP is down, and it also needs that money to recover itself back into a viable entity so it can take over. All of a sudden, you've got a situation where the CCP can't fulfil its function because it's been hamstrung. It's eating into the money that's there as insurance against those trades that are collapsing. That bank's fallen down. All of its counterpart is now on the hook. Some of the less well capitalised ones, for instance, now they start falling down. Then the risk spreads like contagion throughout the system. And it's one of the the major issues with, with actually CCPs at the moment is the fact that, especially with client trades, um, the top 
I think the top five banks hold something like 75% of the collateral, uh, and the top 10 hold 99% of the collateral. Yep. It's very, very difficult to port positions from one bank to another in event of a crisis uh, scenario. Um, and if you have that coupled with a vast operational event and everything else, then it becomes something that could potentially, I mean, without have bring down the system, but have a massive systemic, like a financial crisis, trigger crisis. What is now the timeline we're looking at? Can we expect a resolution at the same time soon? And I guess maybe beyond that, for our listeners, now granted the podcast open to anybody to listen to, so our listeners are a little bit more diverse than necessarily our mm. readership, but you've kind of explained why they should care, but we have a timeline now. What should they be doing? What should they be keeping an eye out for as we go forward here? Oh, I think the lobby group's been pretty active. I, don't, I think FIA wrote a letter to CCPs not too long ago, um, Places like the Chicago Fed have also been doing a lot of working papers on it. Um, and now you have the, the movement in the European Parliament and everything else. I think this is one of those things that people want to get the financial side right for resolution and recovery first, and then they're going to start looking at the NDLs. So I think over the next year or two, you start to see things taking shape. And generally, if Europe does something or if the US does something, it tends to serve as a template for the jurisdictions as well. Sure. But um, I mean, there are a number of the corollary issues, such as, you know, do you get cyber insurance? Do you get insurance against fraud? Do you do all this? Do you do all that? And it's kind of, I think it really speaks to the basic question, really, that perhaps isn't solvable if we put CCPs in as this central focus collection point for risk in the system. Now we're discovering there's a lot of ancillary risk we haven't really thought about, and have we now created something that in itself is too big to fail or too much of a problem, the same way that big banks were before the crisis? Well, as you did you know, describe this intelligently so, might I add, but isn't this something that should have been looked at earlier? I would have thought so, yeah. Why? Is it, or is it just overlooked because everything else that was going on, just well, yeah, no one kind of I think saw it, the scope I of think this. everyone's focus was on the financial side of it, because this is a point where, um, you know, as part of the the famous Pittsburgh agreements in 2009, talking which brought us a lot of CEFs and ATFs and clear contracts and everything, everyone's saying, okay, well, interest rate swaps need to be cleared, and Correct default swaps need to be cleared and um, you know, NDFs and the rest of it. And everyone was focused on getting these safely into clearinghouses so the products themselves, the, the risk from those could be mitigated. Mm. And maybe weren't sort of looking at the wider issues associated with it. And again, it comes back to the profit. The, the, um, the problem, I think, at the end of the day, that CCPs are for-profit entities. Uh, and it doesn't strike me as a sensible thing to have, really. If you've got... CCPs love to claim they're just risk managers. That's all they are. They're risk managers in the financial markets, but they make millions every year, mm. um, you know. The London Stock Exchange has made millions off its stake in LCH. All the major exchanges have clearing houses, NASDAQ, CME, ICE, all of them. Um, you know, if you're going to operate these things as for-profit entities, then these are questions that need to be solved from the beginning, not things that you run into later on and think, well, actually, you know, maybe we're better off if the Bank of England ran the clearing house for the UK or, you know, the Federal Reserve ran the clearing house or something like that. It's too late for that now. Yeah. Um, I think this is a real flaw of the post-crisis rulemaking scenario, but it's also something that people don't want to tackle because there's too much invested in it. So I think we're stuck with it really until the next uh, big market reform hits. Yeah. yeah, and as you know, these global regulations are becoming increasingly intertwined. It's tough to un unentangle all that. What well, is? Yeah, and the risks that are created through that. Well, and there's also some corollary risks that start to develop now, aligned with NDLs through things like fintech, for instance. So you know, one of, one of the classic um, sort of you know air commas um, use cases for NDLs is that a vendor system that supplies it goes down or something else mm -hmm. so you know you're talking about cyber attacks and you're talking about using 
blockchain and sort of emerging technologies and everything else, do they provide an easier access for people to get into these things? So should clearing houses just fulfill one function to be like siphoned off an air, well, I guess kind of air gap from the rest of that system sure. as well? But it's uh, you know it's an interesting thing. Right. Well, James, as I said, is, might be writing more about this. I will not. So um, you'll be uh, hitting up James if you have any so thoughts and pitches on that. So that's going to be fun for you. <laughs> um, so we're not going to talk too much. So we're recording this on a Tuesday. Um, James has some additional cat information about the need for a cat czar, which had the greatest image of all time on waters until... Yeah, some people <laughs> thought it wasn't serious enough for such a serious <laughs> publication like and Waters. This is adults. Yeah. <laughs> um, but go check that out. And then tomorrow, uh, Numerics uh, has an- is announcing that by the time you guys listen to us, it will have been announced um, that they're going to be putting their OneView uh, risk platform on the OpenFin um, uh, operating system. So can remove from the browser and then you guys can tie it into other platforms another kind of development that we've talked about here about mm-hmm. it desktop interoperability this is another big move in that yeah, direction everyone's killing it right now isn't it yes um so you can check out those news stories but the reason why we're recording on tuesday is uh james is going to be heading off into the woods i believe uh, yeah, to, uh, yeah, tomorrow morning into the forests uh, tomorrow evening flying back to the uk which i'm normally excited about but um my friends have all turned 30 and think their West London's answer to Bear Grylls and that they're all sort of adventurists and like me they're all sort of overweight and middle class so they're not yeah. <laughs> the slightest but um, hey look my mate's getting married um, I'm his best man I said what do you want to do what city do you want to go to and that kind of thing he went no I want to go out to the woods and uh, barbecue meat and drink loads of beer for a few days and I was like okay we're probably going to die um, yeah we're almost certainly going to Yeah, we might have an opening for a news editor pretty soon. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you find the footage in a few years' time, you can say, hey, I knew that guy. I listened to him on the Waters <laughs> Wavelength podcast, that major Hollywood film they built out of it. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be an interesting slash fatal experience. Yeah. yeah. Well, so we were kind of making Blair Witch jokes, obviously, mm-hmm. about it. So kind of brought on our favorite horror films of all time. Yeah, so figure just really kind of amp up the near-death experience that you're about to have. Oh, dude, the second I hear any little kid with a banjo, I'm going to oh, yeah. back to New York. This it almost makes me want to buy a ticket out there and just follow <laughs> yeah, guys around and just play that. Are you big into the horror genre, first of all? I'm not like big, big as in, you know, some guys are obsessed with horror films and that kind of thing, but I like good horror films. And I like like fusion ones that blend kind of like like sci-fi and horror and that kind of thing as well. Alien, O-Class is a horror film, for instance. Yeah. Uh, the thing, like great horror film. Don't necessarily, yeah. Would Jaws then fall into a horror film genre? Jaws is a horror film, yeah. yeah. All right, then that kind of check. Because like, when I think of horror film, I'm thinking of like Nightmare on Elm Street. No, yeah, like your slashes and all yeah, the rest of yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Zombie movie. Like, so my, my favorites would either be um, uh, 28 Days and 28 Weeks Later. Loved both those movies. It was always pissed that they never made superior, the next one. I, I enjoyed them both, yeah, I would yeah. agree. 20 is definitely better. And then, what um, what happens to that? Because I heard actually the day they were still, I've been hearing for the last 10 years they're going to do it. Like yeah, it's going to be one of those kind of like, yeah. Mm. Uh, what was the other one? Um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, oh, both the original one. and the new one. Yeah. The, the, or the, there was a newer one that came out in the early 2000s. Is it Two People, was it? Was it the I, I can't it? remember. And that's just a classic. And there's a great, actually, one of the great pieces of long form journalism was. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. About, God, I can't remember, but I remember reading a while ago, but that was great about 
the making of it and how they kind of came into his town and just really, really wild story. Wasn't that dude who kind of just turned up one day and just got yeah. on set just eating sandwiches pretty yep. much, yeah. Um, so those would be kind of my two that I would kind of so put in Have you ever seen Candyman? That's, no. It's fantastic. It's really good. Um, and Hellraiser, the first one as well, like, the rest of the sequels are rubbish. Yeah. Same with Candyman as well, actually. But, uh, yeah, Candyman's really good. Hellraiser's really good. Um, a lot of the John Carpenter films I just really like as well. Um, yeah. You know, like, John Carpenter's Vampires is just the cheesiest cowboy butt rock version of a vampire film you'll ever get James <laughs> Woods just kicking ass the whole way through yeah. which is what you want um, yeah. and uh, yeah the rest of it but uh, yeah I mean in terms of the horror films there was uh, there was one I think it was called It Follows or something a couple of years back and okay. that was awesome that was um, I think it was if when someone what was it going to be what was it? that was it uh, it was taking the kind of the um, Friday Thirteenth kind of teenage sex allegory to the next level. So, yeah. if you're being followed by this like phantasm thing, you have to have sex with someone, and then they sort of uh, have it following them instead. Okay. It's just this kind of creature that takes any form it wants, but it just walks towards you. So it never runs or anything like that, but it'll kill you if it catches up with you. Mm-hmm. And like the whole film is like this girl who just sort of like does all of the right things pretty much. You expect someone to do just like literally gets in the fucking car drives off, gets on a plane, fucks off to the side of the world, mm-hmm. and then like three months later it catches up with her, it's just walked across the ocean, which is bad, and, kind of <laughs> and it's just really, really terrifying and really well done, um, and that was really cool, uh, I thought. And that was that, uh, the film won the Oscar, um, the black exploitation, kind of, not black exploitation, oh, but... Um, um, what, you're talking about Tarantino? No, I'm oh. talking about the one um, with the bloke who goes to the family for the white people and the eyes and the crying and that kind of thing. Oh, get out! Get out! That was it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, plus, that was a horror film. Yeah. As well. That was really um, cool. Yeah, that one was. It's funny because exactly, you know, what do you kind of consider horror? Like, because Jaws, I've never considered horror, but I guess that it is. Um, well, would you consider it like a thriller or an action film? Thriller, or yeah, I guess by thriller. I guess it kind of is more thriller horror, right? Because yeah. horror to me, there has to be something supernatural. Jaws, just mm-hmm. a big badass shark, you know, kind of well, I mean, messing people up. Would you, would you up. consider Scream to be a horror film? Actually, I would. I guess it's going to be a thriller, actually. But it's... Yeah, I guess that, that kind of debunks my whole point, that a guy chasing around. But, you know, or the Czech Chainsaw Massacre or something off about him. I don't know. Yeah. But, you know, so I'm not a big horror fan. So <laughs> this is all around my way of saying that when I was, I don't know, in my mid-20s, there was a girl who was a bit sweet on. She's big on horror films. So I started just, you know, bowing up on horror films and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And the weirdest thing about this was the first time I sleep over at her house, <laughs> PG version of this, I guess, but um, she insisted on falling asleep every night to horror films. Like, And then I'm just like, so just in the middle of like the, the noise is on, the TV's just flickering. So every night you just fall asleep to horror films on in the background. It's to do something to your subconscious, isn't it? it, it, it like... That's what I say relationship did not work out but um, <laughs> it blew my mind that somebody because that has to subconsciously just warp everything yeah, in your head I would imagine just hearing that. Violence, what are your dreams like at night you know <laughs> I mean that's gotta be I don't know That was, so that for me was my own little mini horror film of uh, just like being like just constantly in the middle of the night you kind of start falling asleep and you're like oh my god what yeah, what the hell <laughs> Jesus Christ yeah. Um, so yeah not a big horror film guy I'm not a huge one. I think when it's done really well, I enjoy it. Get Out was interesting, but I thought that that was just interesting because it was the writing was so good on it. You know, you just you know, 
I find with horror films, they, they they're just going for shock value. They're yeah. going for scare value. You know, which is okay. I think if they're like kind of the classic slashes, like yeah. Friday Thirteenth and Halloween yeah, exactly. and things like that. But yeah, the kind of more modern ones. And also, yeah, the, Halloween was great. That, the Halloween was great. Halloween wasn't was truly it? great. Um, and like the torch porn shit that I don't really get into. Like, okay. Yeah. So I go to, uh, I've been out to Serbia a lot. Um, one of my buddies worked in the State Department there in Belgrade. And there was a film called A Serbian Film mm-hmm. that came out. Oh, no, I've seen that. Oh, my God, the snuff film. It's or, basically a snuff yeah, film yeah. is what it is. And the fact that the guy has nothing to do with Serbia in any way, really, but just that it, it takes place in the village in Serbia, has nothing to do with Serbian culture, I think. So it was, not only was the film just horrific, Horrific. I do not recommend this in any way. I've seen this I think film. They actually launched a criminal investigation after, didn't they? Because they weren't quite sure if it was real or not. Like half the time, it's sort of like, <laughs> fucked up. Yeah. And then how also do you call it a Serbian film too? It, it, it blew my mind. So yeah, it, it just you have way too much of that. I feel like going on. Well, like, I do think the original that. Saw was a good film. The, the original one. I remember watching the original Saw. Yeah. Well, I remember like my mates all saying, "You got to watch this. It's great. It's really well done." And uh, they click it on that opening scene where they're chained up in the bathroom. I go. It's the guy on the floor, isn't it? <laughs> they literally just kind of look at each other and just go, God damn it, and then just turn it off. <laughs> <laughs> just like, so. Spoiler alert, by the way. But yeah, horror films, good when they work, like mostly schlocky. But, well, I look know. forward to hearing about your grisly murder and... Uh, yeah, you know, that'll be it, yeah. Uh, I might actually write my own obituary now before I leave. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah, just, we'll, we'll post it online, yeah. along with a picture of a cat fit, sitting on a throne in your honor. <laughs> he lived how he died. <laughs> <laughs> Um, all right, uh, so again, NAFIS, North American Financial Information Summit, the 23rd in New York, Byside Technology European Summit, May 16th in London. If you are an end user, they are free to register, they're free to go to, check them out. Um, day off, if anything, and you get to hear some smart people talk about technology and data. Um, other than that, the Warriors rankings are open, and if you have any good uh, horror films that we didn't mention that we should check out, let us know. Other yeah. than that. Uh, hopefully we'll be both be back this next week. Tony will be back with you next week, and uh, I'll be somewhere in a ditch in Hertfordshire. So yeah, we'll see. Or possibly chained up in some ritual grisly occult murder. I don't know. I'm rooting for that. Yeah. All right. Well, have a lovely weekend, everybody, and we will see you next week. <laughs>